Welcome into the Esports Network podcast, talking anything and everything esports related from the players, coaches, personalities to the companies, the corporations, the more business side of things. You know, a little bit of the, the, the paper getting pushed through. It's important as well. And here to kind of help me dissect what he does on his end of things, let's welcome in Darius Gambino. He is an IP attorney, a uh, partner over at Saul Ewing, Arnsteins, and Layers. Uh, he's his subspecialty, of course. It has to be video gaming and esports. And I mean, we, we bring him on, welcome him in. Come on, Darius, how you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Um, so uh, just to give you guys a quick little oversight of Darius, he's been working in the legal space for, what, over 20 years or so, specializing, of course, IP, trademark, copyright law. It's a kind of a, a very interesting field nowadays with, with gaming and esports and, and streaming and everything popping up. Uh, of course, helping protect clients in, in the patent and trademark litigations. I mean, I've, I've heard I've read it somewhere that you were one of the best trial lawyers when it comes to this field. So I, I'm hoping that with a podcast, it's kind of the same thing, right? Asking questions and answering. So I, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to come on the show and, and give us uh, your perspective from your window of, of the legal uh, world, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you read it somewhere on the internet, it must be true. So I, I appreciate uh, the comment about about being a great trial lawyer. Uh, but I'm, I'm happy to, to be on and to talk about some intellectual property issues in the video gaming and esports space, which I really love. I mean, we all love it. You love it so much. You started a video series for your firm called Lawyers with Game, and you have special guests on there and, and discussions, of course, surrounding gaming and esports. So, we, you know, just for people to know, like, this is not some, you know, he's he's not just been working in the legal space for 20 years, never touched a controller. No, he he, he knows what he's doing, and we should <laughs> we should welcome him with open arms. So we'll get into the Lawyers with Game a little bit later on, but let's start off with a little bit of, of your background, right? You have 20 plus years of experience. Where did your interest in, like, this kind of litigation uh, come from? Like, what led you to become a lawyer slash attorney in this space? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it kind of all started back when I was considering what my major was going to be in. Uh, uh, I went to Villanova for undergraduate. Um, go Cats. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, I was kind of looking at some different things. I thought I wanted to maybe go to law school. Um, my father uh, was a math teacher and a math administrator, so he's very into math and what we call STEM today. We didn't call it that back then, um, <laughs> but, but he was very into that. Um, and he pushed me because I had an interest in engineering to, um, to get an electrical engineering degree at Villanova. Uh, and he said to me, you know what? You can always go to law school. Mm. Um, and so I did that. And then my next transition was to uh, work at the patent and trademark office as a patent examiner because you have to have a technical background to do that. Got in, got into patent law on the um, on the side on the government side of things. Um, and then when uh, I first realized that I could can, uh, transition my love of video games into my legal career, was one of the first jobs I had when I was um, going to law school at night in D.C. I was working at a law firm that represented uh, Sega of America at the mm. time, and they had brought in a um, and we were do we were doing some patent opinions for them, basically looking at some um, other video game companies' patents that were out at that time. This is like I'm talking about the early '90s, and and trying to give them some advice on on infringement issues. Mm. Um, and so, in one of our conference rooms, we had a, a Sega Genesis. And I asked one of the partners, you know, what's going on in there? And they said, oh, well, that's this case we're looking at. 
Uh, and I said, well, I want to be involved in that case because I have a Sega Genesis and I play <laughs> it all the time. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that was the first time, um, you know, we really started um, uh, looking at, uh, or I really started in my career looking at patent issues in the video game space. And that case, if I remember correctly, had to do with a, a game that Sony had developed without getting into too much um, attorney client stuff, uh, a game that Sony had developed called Parappa the Rappa. Oh my where, goodness! <laughs> um, you, you remember that one? I kind of, I think I grew up in like the late nineties playing that on a, on a Genesis somewhere. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they had developed this game. It was a it was a button mashing Music kind of matchup yeah. matchup game. Yeah, and and um, Sony was trying to apply it to various other games like fighting games like Tekken um, and things like that. Um, where, you know, the patent covered basically a, a method of pressing different buttons in different combinations. So, you know, that was my first inclination that I could actually merge the law with video games. And so l- let's talk about that a little bit more. You mentioned you had a Sega Genesis uh, before this, this certain case came up. Where did video games have a place in your household? Was it something that, you know, you and your family's kind of picked up um, later in life? Or was it something that you just kind of always were around? You were in and out of arcades or wh- what was that experience like growing up, uh, you know, playing video games? Yeah, I was absolutely an arcade kid. Um, we had in my area, we had um, an arcade in the mall called Aladdin's Castle. Um, I don't know if you had that near you, but I would play <laughs> games like Gauntlet and Joust, um, Dragon's Lair, um, you know, all those classic uh, 80s games that you can think of. Um, and, and uh, you know, that was kind of what initially sparked my interest. And then you have, um, you know, the Atari, the original Atari coming out. Um, we didn't get one of those, even though I begged my parents for one, (laughs) um, you know, they, um, they were very into education, as I mentioned. And, um, so, uh, we wound up getting as our first computer, one of the first Atari computers, which Mm. was, it was made by Atari, but it had a keyboard. It had a learning element to it, a word processing element to it, but it had cartridges that you could play. Um, and so we had games like asteroids and, and some games like that. And then, um, you know, that slowly transitioned transitioned into some other systems that that kind of began my love of home systems. And then we eventually, in the mid to early '80s, got the first Nintendo, um, and then you know moved on to the Genesis. And one of my personal favorite systems of all time was the Sega Dreamcast. Oh yes, I absolutely loved that system. Um, and it just kind of went on from there. And I have a PlayStation Five now. Uh, my son plays on the Xbox. Uh, series <laughs> X. So uh, we're into it. I mean, that's, that's great to hear. It's somebody who's not just in the legal space surrounding gaming and esports, but also plays himself. That's that's something that you don't hear too often. A lot of these, uh, you know, attorneys and lawyers are just kind of end up in this in that kind of, uh, you know, uh, space, if you will. But, you know, I don't think I've, I've ever I think you're one of the second or, or third lawyer I've met. Who's kind of really they have they have an active uh, console at home that they play on. They they grew up playing it. And so for me, I, I grew up, you know, Outside the arcade era, I grew up, you know, late nineties into now. I, you know, played on the home consoles all the way through. I, I was a lock, uh, a latchkey kid, so I, I pretty much got stranded at home with it with the console. And that was my kind of, you know, the PS2, PS3 was my 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 home away from home, if you will. But it was uh, it's interesting to hear that now that gaming had such an important space for you growing up, and so. 
what have been some, I guess, some of the more valuable lessons that you learned uh, throughout your career, right? Be, you know, 20 years of, of being an attorney and, and working in trademark and copyright law and, and uh, IP, uh, you know, patent infringement, all that stuff, and kind of pairing that with video games. What was a lesson that you had to learn? Either it was a hard lesson or an important lesson. What was something that, that you kind of focus on nowadays? It's like that, that's something I'm glad that I, I had the opportunity to get to to know better. Yeah, I mean, I think even from just in the very beginning, just noticing that companies, you know, in the in the early 80s and and uh, having patents issued in the 90s, that companies like Sony and Sega, uh, Nintendo were really deep into the patent space um, on, on a lot of these games, that they were thinking ahead enough to get patent protection. And, you know, my career has mostly been, you know, the early part of it was all about um, obtaining patent protection for clients. And I still do a little bit of that. And then the second half of my career has been more about um, litigation in not just the patent space, but trademark, copyright, and trade secret spaces. And, you know, I've really seen kind of both sides of things, the procurement and the enforcement. And, you know, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is having an intellectual property portfolio, whether it's patent, trademark, um, or, or copyright or whatever, having that portfolio, um, you know, gives you as, as the, um, you know, the IP owner, some really important um, uh, arrows in your quiver when it comes to uh, fending off competition. Mm. Um, and, and so that's kind of how I advise clients today. You know, it's, it's one thing to be able to get a patent. And it's something entirely different um, to, to go the distance to actually enforce it. And sometimes the value of patents um, and, and trademarks and copyrights as well is more in having them and having other people know that you have them. Yeah. I mean, it's important to kind of protect that for a while. And like you said, enforce it as well. It's, it's something that uh, it's two different worlds, if you will. But I mean, in comparison to your interest in video games early on, right? What led to you seeing this opportunity within the legal space to kind of transition into a, you know, this subspecialty of video games and esports as it relates to, um, to, 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 I guess, you know, intellectual property law and, and, and trademark law. How does, how did that kind of, um, opportunity come about for you? Yeah. I mean, it all started back with, you know, that Sega and Sony case I was mentioning and my recognition that, um, you know, this was something where my intellectual property skills and my love of video games could cross over. And so over the course of my career, I always looked for those types of opportunities. So I've represented, um, you know, several video game companies over the years in, in patent cases, um, including a, a big uh, case a couple of years ago for Bethesda Softworks um, on, a, on some patents that related to um, methods for doing lip sync technology in video games, basically some software that allows game developers to sync up the voice track um, of a game like Fallout or Elder Scrolls, um, giving some Bethesda examples, mm -hmm. sync up the 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 voice track with the, um, the the mouth motions of the character and make things more realistic. And there was a company that had some patents in that area, and you know that was another case, fairly big case in the video game industry that I handled. And um, you know, there's been lots of others. Um, I you know handled a trademark case. Um, that involved uh, Epic Games and Fortnite uh, a couple years ago, and um, or about a year ago, I guess. Um, and so it's just these these things have popped up. You know, it's by no means 
Um, every litigation I have is a video game case at all. I have plenty of other cases that are just kind of a little bit more mundane electrical circuitry or telecommunications or things like that, um, or, or consumer products even. Um, but these cases do pop up and these clients do pop up from time to time. And, and I can say that um, I, I have experience with it and, and I can speak to the clients intelligently because a lot of the times the people that you're dealing with in-house at, um, on the client side um, are the same as we are. You know, they, mm-hmm. they have a lot of experience with video games, a love of video games. They grew up with them. And when you can talk about those things and you can say, like I said to you, my favorite system was the Sega Dreamcast. Maybe we share that in common with, you know, with the client. Uh, or maybe there's an- another game um, that we share in common with that client. And, and that creates a bond and that creates trust. And, and that's what, um, you know, that's what it all comes down to when uh, you, you're selecting an attorney to handle a multi-million dollar case for you. You want to have that comfort feeling and that trust. For sure. I mean, that's just, that's crazy. I mean, just just the technique of matching up mouth movements with voice lines, it was patented. And so you had to kind of go in and, and figure that out. That's 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 something I didn't even think about just to kind of put that in perspective. It's like the techniques behind just developing games being patented is, is also insane to me. Yeah, the backstory of that was very interesting. I took several depositions in that case going and looking back at the original things that Pixar had done and Jurassic Park. Um, and a lot of the um, really early on um, kind of motion um, uh, mimicking and and uh, that type of technology in both movies and games, because, you know, like you said, I can't believe something like this was patented. Uh, and, you know, that was a big part of it. There was a lot of these things out there, a um, lot of pieces of software that um, that were meant to mimic the different ways that our mouths look when we're saying different words. And that's exactly what the software is doing for the video game industry. It's allowing them to to make the mouth of the character look like a human mouth when it's speaking in a game to add realism. Oh, man, it's, that's something so small for most people. They don't even notice it. And then to have that kind of become a centerpiece kind of uh, like if you will case is kind of very, very strange for me to hear. But I love that something so mundane like that becomes such a big deal for a lot of people. And that's, you know, can stop production on games completely, which is insane to me. But uh, I mean, so even working with traditional IP law as well, not just, you know, esports and gaming, but from your experience, what differences does esports and gaming bring to you know your traditional IP and trademark laws versus you know versus uh, you know e- e- coming up against gaming and esports is it kind of like a, a big difference? Do you see a lot of courtrooms kind of struggling with the fact that gaming and esports are kind of uh, bring a new frontier to this kind of law, or is it kind of mostly just it's all the same? Just the the only difference is the names and the companies involved. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know software litigation um, in the patent space has been around for a long time, and it's really just kind of an offshoot of that. Mm-hmm. A lot, of, a lot of these cases are. Um, but the thing that I think is is interesting um, that's that's something that video games have brought to the legal world that hasn't really fully been fleshed out yet. And this was something that was at issue. Um, in in the case um, I was talking about with Epic Games and Fortnite, it's this whole concept of virtual infringement. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, if you have something that's in a game that's trademarked or known um, and it's used, um, does you know do, does that developer need permission to use that? 
um, you know, when, when they use um, a certain character, obviously, uh, if it's a, you know, Fortnite is famous for um, using uh, Marvel Comics characters and, and other well-known characters, and obviously they go out and they license that. But there's a lot of other things that get used in, in games um, and where you have something that, that virtually exists, um, that if it existed in the real world, probably would be an infringement of someone's trademark rights, mm-hmm. but it exists in a virtual world and, a, and it's a virtual world that's protected to a certain extent by the first amendment and by, um, you know, authors and artists right to create um, unique uh, things. So there's a really interesting dynamic going on there. It started back, um, uh, back in the mid two thousands um, was one of the first cases I remember on it where Actually, um, funny enough, a strip club in Los Angeles <laughs> called the called the Playpen um, sued Rockstar for including a, um, a mimicked version of uh, of the place called the Pigpen in, <laughs> in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Wow! Um, and and that was that battle went on for for a while. You would think, you know, well, eventually this small club in LA would kind of just give up, but it became one of those landmark cases um, about what, you know, what does it mean to, to infringe someone's trademark within a virtual world? And that, that state of law is still evolving. That's crazy. I mean, you'd think that, you know, pig pen and playpen, it'd be kind of like, you could, you could base it off parody, but I guess they found enough to kind of really keep it going. Right. Right, right, exactly. I mean, um, you know, one of the things about uh, Grand Theft Auto, uh, in particular San Andreas, um, is, you know, they make an effort to kind of go out and make a um, uh, a mimicked world of whatever city they're in, right? Mm-hmm. So, in that case, it was, it was kind of a cartoonized version of Los Angeles, yeah. um, but with a lot of the same things that you might see in, in real life Los Angeles. So, um, you know, that, that, that concept is done and, and it's being done more in a, a lot of games to add kind of realism and to add the kind of shared experience of, <laughs> oh, hey, I've been there. Um, you know, the, the Spider-Man game that just came out for the PS5 oh, yeah. last year. I mean, when I tell you, you when you swing around New York, um, and you can, uh, you know, there are some streets that are missing. But you can go to places that you've been to in New York and look around and it looks amazingly the same yes i mean I, I think i've seen quite a few videos on on and i've also played the game myself you know just, just going around the streets like wait I've, I've been to this corner i don't remember how or when or why but i, I think i've like walked around this corner during my one of my new york trips or something but yeah it's, it's it's the same thing and it's funny because you brought up fortnite earlier and i remember a few years ago before fortnite really kind of took off that there was some kind of case against them because they they modeled a gun too closely to an actual real life gun in in the game and so i think it was uh, specifically it was like Smith and Wesson or some kind of gun manufacturer out there that was really kind of going hard at them and the same thing happened for I want to say for a game like Assassin's Creed it's based in like uh, historical buildings some of those buildings have copyrights on their likeness and so using them in game they had to settle uh, out of out of court the likeness use of a, of a, of a building that they were using it was out of, out of Italy or something and so to, it, this is not something that I've I really kind of had the chance to think about until I had you on the show to kind of think about like, wow, it's a lot more that goes on to creating realistic games and we really realize. And so I'm, I'm sure 
I'm sure there's a lot more we could get into with that, but is it kind of uh, crazy to hear about all these little mundane things from, you know, lip movements to, uh, you know, likeness of a, of, a, of a building, likeness of a gun, likeness of a strip club being used and being as, as a kind of like a cornerstone for a court case? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy, but it's, you know, as, as you just said, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me to, to, to think about and to understand everything that goes into developing these games. I mean, they've really um, become like mini movies, um, you know, in, in the production that goes into them. Uh, and they're getting more and more complex every year. Um, and, and so to me, it's, it's fascinating to see this area of law develop and it's still developing. Mm. Um, you know, like you said, a lot of these cases have settled out of court, which um, as lawyers, we don't always love because then there's no precedent, mm-hmm. right? When someone settles, um, you know, you don't get that court decision that says, hey, this is an infringement or this isn't an infringement. And then that's what we as attorneys kind of base our future decisions on what what those prior case decisions look like. And so this, you know, this area is still evolving. And I think it's it's going to be extremely interesting over the next 10 or 15 years um, to see how some of these issues of, uh, you know, copyrighted buildings and, um, you know, trademark uh, guns and uh, <laughs> equipment. There was another case in Call of Duty with um, Bell helicopters yep. being being used. You know, <laughs> uh, again, that settled that settled before there was any significant decision. So I I find it extremely interesting. And as a you know someone who's in these games and who wants that realism, um, you know, it, it's a delicate balance. No, for sure. And so I'm sure um, it, it's it's an evolution, like you said. It, it just has something that has to continually evolve over the next few years to kind of really be cemented and have an actual some kind of actual substantial precedence to be used in, in the future for you know other companies. But um, speaking of evolution, your your firm uh, Saul Ewing, of course, you host a video series with them that I, I was surprised when I heard about. I was like, that's not very often you hear um, a firm going out and supporting a video game video series with you at the helm called Lawyers with Game. Um, what kind of interest surrounded uh, the launch of a video series about gaming and esports? And I mean, what led you to kind of host it? I mean, I'm sure you brought it up to, to your bosses over at Saw You and you're like, hey, there's interest here. We should really bring on some guests and talk about this. But wh- what kind of support did you see kind of building this up and, and hosting? I know you only launched, what, a few months ago. So you, you're still kind of in the in the in the weeds, if you will. But it's it's pretty good from what I've seen so far. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, we've been we only launched, um, you know, in the summer of this year, but we've been working on it um, all year. And um, for me, it really started my prior firm, um, which I was at for 17 years. Um, we had um, a, a bit of the video game and esports practice, but it was kind of ad hoc. You know, there was mm-hmm. just a couple of people that that kind of were into it. Um, and, and, you know, we were kicking around marketing ideas there. Um, nothing like this. Um, and, but, you know, it never really went anywhere. And the one thing I love about Saul Ewing is um, their marketing department is really second to none. If you bring them um, a great idea and uh, like you said, your bosses love it, um, they're going to do it. And so, um, you know, they already had when I, one of the reasons I wanted to, to go there um, was they already had an established esports and video game practice group, um, which is led 
um, by my colleague Al Coleman out in Minneapolis, and um, he does work for Version One and Rocker, mm. um, and uh, you know a lot of other uh, a lot of other entities in the esports space, um, and and you know they already had this established practice, but I didn't feel like it was being talked about enough, and like everyone else during the pandemic, you know I had the idea of well I'm I'm going to be at home anyway. Let's let's think about what we can do with a video series, um, and I came up with this concept of uh, of lawyers with game, and uh, I thought it would be a great idea to have some of our existing clients come on and talk about some of their experiences. And um, you know, we we did that, and we put together. And, uh, we still have one more episode that's left to drop um, in the next week or two. Oh wow. Um, and, and then we're, you know, hopefully going to do it again next year with um, some more and different clients um, and, you know, maybe other people as well. Maybe someone like you oh, wow. um, would, would come on and, and talk to us about your experiences. But um, we just kind of wanted to relay. And, and, and the other part of it is, um, you know, a lot of the, my colleagues at Saul Ewing also have an interest in gaming. They have a game system at home. Now it's, it's of different levels. In some cases it's, you know, they play with their kids. In some cases they play on their own time. Um, maybe, you know, not as, um, as zealous as, as you or I are about it, but, um, they're all gamers and they, and they're all into it. And I thought, you know, relaying that to the people who might hire us as attorneys was something important. And, um, and that we knew about this world and that we lived in it. And, and so that's, that was really the ultimate idea. And, you know, it got approved and, um, you know, we spent the last year putting it together and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really happy with the way that it came out. I mean, I'm happy just watching it. I, I have it on the background and, you know, while I'm working, I, I listen to it and it's, it's pretty, it's, it's like, it's like this show. It's, you know, 45 ish minutes to 20 minutes or so, or excuse me, 25 to 40 minutes or so. And it's just interesting talk to interesting people and we're learning all kinds of things. So, I mean, this is kind of a, a subjective question, but what was the most surprising thing that, that you've learned throughout this video series? So most surprising, um, I don't know. I don't know that I was surprised about about uh, about anything <laughs> that I learned. Probably the, the 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 most surprising thing was that that you know, like you said, the bosses went for it. Um, <laughs> you know, because you know, law firms by law firms by their nature are you know very conservative. Yes. Um, and you know, my old uh, just give you an example. You know, my old law firm um, really didn't want to get into the cannabis space because of you know concerns of what that would mean. Um, and Saul Ewing is very active in that space, as are a lot of other firms. Um, but, but you know, I think, um, you know, they don't, uh, firms in general don't want to, to um, portray an image to anyone that they're anything less than serious. Mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, when you come on and you have a series about video games and you talk about playing video games, um, you know, so there are some people that might say, well, you know, that's, you know, those aren't serious lawyers. Um, but, but, you know, I look at it completely differently at coming from the world that I came from. And I think everyone in our practice group looks at it that way too. We're serious lawyers that on our downtime play video games. Mm. And, um, I think it's extremely important that we do that to represent, um, our clients to, to the best that we can. I mean, it's, it's, 
It's truly a, a cutting edge firm you've joined here because I've, you know, I don't think I ever heard somebody uh, refer to themselves as a serious lawyer working in the esports industry kind of space. You know, and of course, the work is serious, but you know, there's also times you kind of have to lay back a little bit and enjoy the the gaming you have in front of you. So, if you ever need a guest, let me know. I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to hop on. I've never been, you know, extended in an invitation, uh, you know, in the middle of an interview before. So I think I'm blushing a little bit on this side of the camera. I don't know if you can see that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll definitely set something up, Kevin. We'd love to have you on for sure I'd, I'd love to say yes so let's do it um but let's talk about this esports and gaming space a little bit more when you first heard that you know competitive gaming and esports companies were emerging and it was kind of becoming this new fangled media market with tons of opportunities for intellectual property and, and trademark and copyright and all that good stuff there what was your first reaction like was it one of kind of like you're kind of like being a little skeptic or was it one like you're, you're more curious. I, I figure you're more curious than anything about the emerging space, right? Absolutely. I was curious about it and I was excited about it. The thing that I think I first had skepticism about was when colleges and universities um, started having scholarship programs for esports athletes. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm so thrilled that that has really taken off. And at, um, just as an aside, at, at my firm, we represent a lot of colleges and universities. And, and as part of our esports group, we've worked with a lot of them on different issues about setting up tournaments and, um, you know, having um, programs, varsity programs, things like that. Um, but I, I'd say that was the first thing I said, hmm, well, um, I can understand, you know, uh, having a scholarship for um, an NCAA basketball player, but for esports players. Um, but I'm so happy that that has really taken off and and become what it's become, um, and and it's still growing. Um, that 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 whole uh, that whole aspect of it. But yeah, no, I was um, I was excited about it because I knew that um, esports in general was going to bring more of a focus to video games and and make the make it more of um, you know a serious business thing to mm -hmm. to develop a uh, a serious business around video games rather than you know i think when when um, we go back to the original nintendo in the in 85 in that time period it was a game um in the in the toy section of the store mm -hmm. um that was marketed to kids right um and now you know you have these systems which are integral parts of universities um uh, parts of businesses um you've got so many different third-party businesses, peripheral manufacturers, um, esports teams, um, you know, marketing groups uh, like FaZe Clan and Cloud9, um, and and you've got um, you know athletes and celebrities wanting to get involved in this. Um, it's just it's come so far, and I'm just really pleased at at everything that's happened. And it's still going further, I think. You know, I wanted to ask you this because I feel like you have a pretty good idea and a pretty good hand on, on the space at hand. Um, a big talk of contention has been, you know, gambling, not just for esports, but also for sports. You know, sports betting and esports betting has been a point of contention across many states. We're seeing some like loosen the barriers, opening doors for, you know, betting sites and companies to come in across various states. I mean, what progress have you seen on this front? And should we be worried or should we look at this with like an optimistic eye when it comes to betting and, and, you know, not just sports betting, but also esports betting? Should we be kind of optimistic or kind of wary of what's going on? Yeah. I, I mean, I think when you 
it's about just kind of betting on esports tournaments, like betting on a League of Legends tournament or betting on a Valorant tournament or something like that. Um, you know, I, I don't see any major harm there because all that betting is being done through authorized casinos. You're going to have to, you know, be of age to make that happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest problem, and I wrote an article about this um, at least a year ago, um, the biggest problem that I see are loot boxes. Mm. Um, you know, you um, there's no restriction um, on, on, on who can buy and open a loot box other than, you know, you have to get your parents' permission to use their credit card to, to buy them. But, um, you know, Belgium... Uh, uh, flat out outlawed them. Mm-hmm. Um, you ha- have Brazil uh, right now looking at seriously outlawing them. And you um, have a, a senator, um, Senator Josh Hawley in the United States that introduced a bill last year um, trying to, um, you know, put serious protections around them. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't know. I don't necessarily agree that legislation or law is the solution there. But, you know, take, for example, I, I, NBA 2K is, is one of my favorite games. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's an aspect to that game where if, you know, you want to buy uh, and get better players for your team, you're, you're spending money on loot boxes. And for many years, um, uh, and it's the same thing with Madden and FIFA and mm-hmm. a lot of other games, um, there was no disclosure of, of odds of what you were going to get. So it was, you know, people were kind of just out there opening up packs, spending, you know, $2 here, $5 there, $20, um, and then posting YouTube videos of, hey, this is what I got. These packs are good or they're not good. And nobody really had any sense of the odds of what they were buying. Now there's more odds uh, there, but uh, but I think you still have this issue of, um, you know, somebody that that wants to, that's under 18 that is playing and wants to get better at the game, um, you know, spending a lot of money uh, on, on loot boxes. So there's that concern. And then there's the, you know, about the people that are of consenting age, um, you know, kind of getting caught in a gambling trap. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, one of my, uh, my favorite 2K uh, YouTubers, a guy named DBG, um, had a great post about this recently about, you know, kind of saying to people, hey, listen, you don't need to go out and spend this money. You don't need to get caught up in this trap. You, you know, you can do just fine without doing that. And I think there needs to be a little bit more of that message um, to, to people in general. I under- fully understand that DLC is, is a huge revenue stream for publishers, um, meaning downloadable content like loot boxes. But, um, you know, I, I do think there needs to be a little bit more um, maybe talk about that and, and about um, how how gambling um, in general and maybe gambling addiction is implicated there? No, for sure. I mean, it's, it it feels like there's a bit of a a bypass happening between you know these companies and gambling to an underage audience, which is you know it, it, kids will play these video games, right? No matter if it's uh, M for mature or E for everyone, it's going to be kids involved some way somehow because that's just kind of the world we're in right now. Uh, the rating system's out there for parents to kind of use, and the kids will still play it anyways. But for a lot of these games, loot boxes is like an integral part of, of their of their of their of their uh, the revenue stream. Like you said, like League of Legends, uh, Apex Legends, they all do some kind of loot 
box gimmick, if you will, surrounding, you know, pay this much money for tokens or something. You can buy this amount of boxes for that amount of tokens and you get some special skin out of it for that or some special, you know, cosmetic item for that. I mean, I don't know if it's for the sports games, it's a lot more kind of uh, gameplay based, but for the most part, that's what it's been. And so there's still absolutely. And, and, you know, um, I don't know if you remember, but you know, another game I really love is, um, uh, star Wars, uh, battlefront. Yeah. And they got, they got themselves, EA got themselves, um, into kind of a publicity, uh, war over, um, you know, what people were calling pay to play for that game, you know, getting pay, you know, opening loot boxes to get better weapons. And they ultimately wound up taking it out of the game. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, you have the, uh, like you said, the you know, in League of Legends and in Fortnite and some other places, it's really more cosmetic. It's not really making you any better at the game. Um, but in the sports games, you know, there still is an element to it that, hey, if I get this card and that card, my I'm going to be able to complete these challenges so much easier or, you know, what whatever it, whatever it may be. Um, and I just think we need to keep an eye on um, you know, everyone that's playing these games and, and, and gambling addiction that, that, that could happen there. For sure. For sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that we need more information on moving forward. And I don't think, um, you know, it's going to be solved in, in, in a few, in, in, in one or two court cases, it's going to be like a, probably like a decade's worth of work to kind of really examine what the exact situation is here. I mean, but, you know, loot boxes aside, um, in terms of, you know, tournament betting, uh, season bettings for, for esports that have seasons and leagues, what exact hurdles had to be overcome to help more easily kind of pave the way for betting across the states? You know, not just esports betting, but also sports betting. You know, Texas is, is really pushing for where I'm at is pushing for legalized sports betting, which would entail esports as well. But what have you seen from your perspective that will, would help kind of ease states into opening those doors a little bit easier? Yeah, that's that's uh, the gang is not really my area of expertise, but I, I can tell you that, um, you know, that's a state by state thing. Um, you know, in in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey, we have sports betting and we've had it for a while. And and I know I haven't tried to do it yet, but I know there's an esports um, betting aspect to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, you know, I think the way it's being sold is um, that it's just um, another another sport. Yes. Um, you know, another, and, and it's, and that way, you know, just the same as you would bet on a football game, you can bet on a league of legends match and you can do, um, all your different, uh, types of things that you can do, uh, w- with, with sport, traditional sports betting. Um, and, and I think it, it will be as the tournaments become more and more popular, I think that the, the betting will become more and more popular. The thing that has evolved around things like football and basketball and baseball is kind of a whole um, statistics industry mm-hmm. that really is good at predicting things based on trends, but we don't have that for esports, right? So it's a little bit, I mean, we do to a certain extent, but I don't know that there's third party companies out there tracking, you know, how well particular League of Legends players do in tournaments or how well teams do in a Call of Duty tournament. Um, but, but I think that's, what's used a lot today for sports betting. Yeah. It's, it's too small a sample size now for a lot of esports teams and leagues that third parties are just going to be, you know, pulling their hair out, trying to, trying to, trying to measure every, every trend it's, you know, football, uh, you know, NFL, MLB, uh, NBA, they all have 
teams with long histories, players with decent amounts of history. So you kind of have an idea of what to expect. But I mean, a big push nowadays we've been seeing is is mobile gaming kind of making its way to the forefront. And I'm kind of, you know, bearing the lead here a little bit because mobile gaming is really the, you know, one of the largest emerging markets within gaming in the world, right? It, it's it's easy to, to develop. It's easy to kind of push through a mobile game. And so I, I, I'm curious, based on your work with IP law and, and, and um, trademark law, what challenge does mobile gaming bring to the legal space? Is it like essentially too easy for some companies to develop these games and infringe on your clients, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, properties or what have you, what has your, been your experience with mobile gaming in general? Yeah. Mobile gaming is very interesting. Like you said, there's um, relatively low barrier to entry around the world. Everyone has a cell phone of some kind. So in Southeast Asia and India, mobile gaming far exceeds console gaming. Like you wouldn't think that, but that's, you know, more people play on mobile than they do because they can't get or afford an Xbox or a PlayStation um, or the television to play it on or the hookups and, you know, the internet fees and things like that. But everyone has a phone. So, um, you know, mobile gaming is, um, is, is going to be huge. It, it already is huge. Um, and, you know, the thing that I've seen recently in that space um, is this big um, patent war between uh, GRI, mm-hmm. which is a, um, a, a Japanese um, game developer, a big company, um, and Supercell, who is the publisher behind Clash of Clans, which is um, owned in, in large part by um, another um, Asian entity, that, uh, Tencent. Yes, the Chinese Chinese uh, Google, if you want to call them that. Um, but so you know, they're, they've been embroiled in a big patent battle because GRI has literally, um, you know, hundreds of patents on different aspects of mobile gaming, and uh, they have several on you know what I would consider to be um, uh, city building type games, like you have with Clash of Clans. Mm-hmm. You know, where you're kind of building something up and um, you know, building up your army, things like that. Um, so you have a lot of patents in that space right now in the mobile gaming space. I think that while while some games are uh, you know are easy to develop and release on mobile, there could be some some potential um, patent concerns there for for companies that are going into the mobile space. Just just you know, Gree is just one example. Um, but you know, there are certainly other companies out there that have really built up a large patent portfolio around aspects of mobile gaming. So, I mean, I think, I think that's definitely, um, a concern going forward there, but I mean, it's just, it's, it's a really open area right now. And you have to be thinking, um, about mobile gaming if you're a game developer, uh, because there, you can reach so many more people through their phone than you than you can through uh, an Xbox or a PlayStation. No, for sure. I mean, uh, I have an article pulled up here. Supercell ordered to pay Gree ninety two point two million in damages as part of their uh, their legal dispute over six patents that they had uh, infringed upon. So that's 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 if, if it's almost a you know a hundred million dollar deal or, or kind of uh, issue. You should be looking at this a little bit more more close uh, more closely than than others really you know kind of don't need to ignore it as much. But uh, Darius, I've asked you a bunch of questions about you know anything and everything relating to your job, relating to your viewpoints, your clients. I got one last one for you. And I'll let you go. From your point of view, from your perspective, super subjective. I know 
you don't have, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a deep one. So I got to ask, what does the future of esports and gaming look like for you? Is there going to be a challenge or is it going to be more of an open frontier for people? No, I'd have to say that it's going to be uh, an open frontier, especially once we come out of COVID. I actually think that the esports industry was poised to blow up before um, you know we had to shut things down in March of 2020. I think you were seeing um, you know so many more um, tournaments being organized, and you know so much more viewership. And um, I've only seen that grow over this time period where we've all kind of had to maintain our distance. Um, and, and I think that once we're all able to go back to that, um, it, it's, it's only going to explode. I mean, I just saw the other day that, um, that TwitchCon is going to be in person in October, 2020 in San Diego. Um, I hope to be there. Ooh. I hope to be there in person. Um, and you know, I, I hope that that kind of is, is a marker for, um, the time when we can all kind of get back to normal and, um, we can, um, start gaming together in person again and going to tournaments, um, and really letting this, uh, industry expand. For sure. I mean, I've said it on this show once and I'll say it again. The decade of 2020 will be probably one of the most pivotal ones in the development of esports moving forward. And so... We got 10 years uh, roughly on the map, so we got to figure it out for by, by the end of uh, by 2030s, I guess, once they get here. But um, for now, we just have to make do with what we have, which is currently, you know, just uh, going to the, you know, these small in-person events here and there like TwitchCon, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, Darius, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, man, giving us your perspective on things. And of course, uh, just, just providing an, an absolute abundance of resources for, pe- for people to look into. So where can people find you, get in touch with you, follow along with your endeavors and your exploits? Where can people do all of that? Yeah, so um, my primary um, uh, kind of social media that that's my go to is Twitter, and uh, my handle on there is Philly IP P H I L L Y IP, um, and so I tweet out a lot of things about the video game industry and about a lot of other things on there. Philly sports from time to time. What what Ben Simmons is thinking from day to day. <laughs> um, but uh, there's that. There's my law firm uh, website, which is www.sol.com. Um, just remember better call Saul yep. and, um, uh, you can also find the lawyers with game, uh, uh video cast on YouTube, uh, uh, under the, uh, Saul Ewing, Arnstein and Lair, uh, YouTube page. It's, there's a, um, a curated selection of, of the lawyers with game, uh, video cast there. You can also find it on our website. Um, and I, th- I think that's, uh, I think that's pretty much everything from Perfect. my perspective. So, uh, it's been really great um, talking to you, Kevin. This is, uh, you know, stuff I love to talk about. I know you do too. Yep. So uh, I'm, I might need to go get on my PlayStation 5 right about now. <laughs> hey, enjoy it while you got it. It's Friday. Time to kind of enjoy ourselves at that time of this recording, of course. But uh, I'll, I'll leave links to all that in the podcast description below. And we'll make sure we'll tag Darius himself, of course, uh, once he posts on, show, on socials. And um, Philly sports, though, man, I don't know. Cowboys just beat the Eagles, man. I don't, I don't know how you, how you feel about that right now. Any, any quick thoughts? Uh, we're not talking about that right now, but uh, but you know we'll we'll make a comeback. I think we're playing Dallas again in uh, late December, so we'll see what happens. Oh yeah, Dark Daxon throw for like 400 yards and then six touchdowns. We'll see, right? <laughs> uh, Darius, thank you again for coming on the show, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely.
He's Darius Gambino, IP attorney with Saul Ewing, and I'm Kevin Curry right here on the Esports Network Podcast. Whoa.